relationship with Jesus. It's just a given. So that's a tension. But then there's been this other conversation that's been rippling throughout the church and different denominations for years and years and years. And that is this whole thing around discipleship. How we disciple followers of Jesus. And, um, and I've got the answer. As best I know how. Uh, so what I'm going to try and do for the rest of this year, and we're going to probably weave in and out of this for as long as God has us as a community of faith here in Dungannon, to be followers of Jesus, to be disciples of Jesus, or maybe a better translation of the word because it's probably lost now as it's been thousands and thousands of years, and, and again, there's just been so much uh, confusion around what discipleship is and what it looks like and how it should be practiced and, and who should do it and who should be the head of it and, and whose disciples we are. Some people disciple people when we actually should become disciples of Jesus Christ and him and him alone, right? So what we're going to do is we're going to weave in and out of those things and, um, and the better word for us maybe is apprentice. Apprentice, we're training to be like him and to do what he did. So those are the things that we're going to do. So we're going to do the first part, and uh, we're, there's three components to it, but we're, pr we're actually going to do one of the practical components today, and we're going to take that. This is Michelle's uh, gift to us this morning. She's been uh, so excited to do something around hospitality. She's been talking about it for months. Uh, we have uh, sort of fired a few shots over your head every now and then talking about the table, if you remember that, that we felt that God was uh, calling us to not build a better church or a bigger church, but to have a bigger table so that we can invite our community uh, to come and to be part of what he's doing in his kingdom. And that doesn't mean within four walls actually being the table. The table actually is movable. All right? So that's what we're going to do. And uh, today I want to kick off this series called The Table. The Table. Anybody ever have a wee wristband, WWJD? Yeah. Anybody have one of those? And then there was push, wasn't it? Pray until something happens. And then, was it frog? What does that mean? See, you just, you see, you're all, you're all slaves to society. You buy the stuff and you don't even know what it means. What, what frog was? Let's just make something up. Eh? Well, they're relying on God. Hallelujah. You were all caught. It was just a market employee for people to sell uh, these wee bands on eBay. But hey, God bless you. And if they did something for you, hallelujah, Jesus. But anyway, WWJD. Uh, what, what happens with WWJD is when you find yourself in a situation uh, and you're thinking, what would Jesus do? Sometimes, uh, and I'm not being irreverent, sometimes that's kind of confusing because you're thinking, I'm a 21st century person, or if you're female, you're thinking, I'm a female, or I'm just a student going to university. What would Jesus do? I think uh, a better, and I've said this before, a better way to phrase that is to take all the, all the guesswork out of it, to take all the trying to figure out what would Jesus do, just to make it really, really simple for you, is... What did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? What did he do? Because he doesn't leave us wanting. He doesn't leave us guessing. He actually gives us a pattern through ancient scriptures. The Holy Spirit gives us pattern. And so there's not a lot of guesswork actually in being a follower of Jesus Christ. There is a lot of obedience, I might add. So there's not a lot of guesswork, but there is, in fact, a lot of obedience. So a far better way is to, what would Jesus, what did Jesus do? Or if you still want your WWJD, what would Jesus do if he was me? You can add that on to, to that. So how do we engage? How do we, how do we become better apprentices? How do we live the life that God intended us to live? 
Before we get there, I want to ask you another question. How do we invite people into this lifestyle? How do we, live pe- how do we invite people into the life and the culture we call Christian? Kingdom. Jesus. How do we live the Christian life in an ever-changing culture? Man, has culture changed. Feels like you went to sleep one night, then you woke up the next day, and everything shifted. Truths shifted. We don't know. We, 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 we get nervous around truth. Even followers of Jesus Christ, they get nervous around truth. Now, what is truth? And I'm going to help us along on that journey as we weave in and out of Apprentice. God is. I hope put a love in your heart. I'm hoping God has put a love in your heart for people that you engage with, whether that's in your workplace, whether it's your family, whether it's, it's friends, whether it's people that you just somehow did life with in, a, in a, an obscure sort of place and time. That, that just, it can happen anywhere in any place. That God puts a, a hunger in your heart, a love in your heart for people that you know and people that you, you, you know a little of, that they would come into this kingdom lifestyle that they would find the life that is truly life, that they would find this Jesus who offers life to the full, as he explains it, a life of freedom, a life of the rule and reign of King Jesus here on earth. I hope that that's your heartbeat. And if you're part of the Vineyard Church here at all, you'll pick up very, very soon. If you're new to us, that this is our drive. This is our persuasion. This is who we are. This is our motivation that we want others to discover the life that we have discovered, this life of freedom and this life of peace in an anxious world. Is, would, that be your, would that be your thing this morning? Would you be that person? Wow, this is really going to be a long, long series. Okay. But it is, we feel nearly like we're aliens in, a, in this world because of culture shift. And you're probably thinking, well, that's just too big a gap for me because of how my friends react, how people see the church nowadays, how, how, uh, I, how I view the media and how I see the news. It's just too big a jump for me, Jason. I, I, I like that in principle, but I don't know if it, I could actually see people, the people that I engage with, the people that I do life with, come into the life that God is offering them, the life of the kingdom, the life of the spirit, the life that is truly life, the rule and reign of King Jesus, that life of freedom, of power and love. And it can happen. And I'm going to give you something very practical today to make a start on that. Uh, I spent 24 hours um, a couple of months back with a guy called Mark Sayers from Australia. And he was talking, uh, he kept using these two words, because post-Christian. Uh, post-Christian. And so I thought, that doesn't apply to me. I live in Dungannon. I don't live in Portland. I don't live in Perth. I don't live in... Uh, pardon? Who cares? He's from Melbourne. Sorry, I got his geographical location wrong. But who says I was talking about him? So, so I don't live in those places. I don't live in England. Sorry if you're English. But, uh, uh, and I don't live in the US of A. Thank Jesus for that one. Uh, so, <laughs> and then I discovered something because he gave us a definition that was true. And actually, we do live in a post-Christian culture. And the definition that he gave, and I want to just add a little on to it, is that a post-Christian culture is not that we don't have memory 
of the gospel. It's not that we don't have information on the gospel. It's not that the gospel message is lost. It's not that we have forgot about it and we're post-Christian, that everything that we once knew about Bible is removed from our mind and our imagination and our thinking, that we live in a culture now where nobody knows the name of Jesus and nobody knows the words of the gospel. That's not true. That's not a post Christian culture. What a post-Christian culture is, let me give you the definition, and I'm stealing this from Mark Sayers, and it's a brilliant one, is this. There is a people now in a community that ache for the kingdom, but without the king. Society actually is aching for the kingdom. It is craving the kingdom. You tell me people do not want peace in a sanctuous world? That's not an argument. That's a given. You tell me people are not searching for joy and stability in such uncertain times? They are. That's a given. You tell me people don't want freedom in their life that are just bound up by, by thoughts and by, by self-image and by consumerism? Do you think that people in our culture, in our society, the people that you do life with on a day-in, day-out basis don't want to experience the freedom and the full love of King Jesus in their lives? They do, but they don't want it with Jesus. And then that makes it so easy for other people to add on things to the gospel message, you see. That's what post-Christian culture is. It's so much easier for people to go and, and worship something else or to worship consumerism or to add on things to truth or to, to start to change the, the, the thinking of what gospel is or what the message of Jesus is. When we take the kingdom without the king, then it's so much easier to worship whatever we want to worship and do whatever we want to do. But I'm convinced... As one who has experienced, and one who has experienced, is that the kingdom life that Jesus offers humanity is the best thing for humanity. The original design that God intended for humanity right in the beginning is still the very thing that humanity needs. So we do live in a post-Christian world, even here in sunny Dungannon. We are starting to live in a post-Christian culture. So we can do some things about that. I have three suggestions. Michelle talked about forming uh, some sort of committee earlier on the tea and coffee thing. Uh, next thing will be voting on the paint of the walls and the color of the carpet and should he have a round table that swings around or not. Uh, that's all up for debate, eh? So I'm going to give you three options this morning, okay? You can phone a friend and you can go 50-50. Here we go. Okay, the first thing that we can do is a community of faith, as followers of Jesus Christ, if you're not part of this community, just as a follower of Jesus Christ, you could actually just shut up shop and we could make the church a fortress from the world. We could say the culture has moved, moved so far that we don't want any part of that culture. We want to remain in the truth and we want to remain in how we know things to be and how things ought to be. So therefore, let's just not engage people. Let's not have our friends and our family uh, and those people that we uh, rub shoulders with on day in, day out basis. Let's not bring them into the fullness and the rule and reign of King Jesus because it's just too big a leap. So we've found him. We're happy. Hey, let's shut up shop and we'll have a great time together. Anybody voting for that? Some, uh, okay, there's one man voting for that. You want a cup of coffee? We'll get a coffee just at the end. But anyway, sometimes I'll tell you, uh, do you want to hear my deepest, deepest, darkest hour when I'm stressed out about church and life and, and how we do church and having to go again and raise more money and raise more funds and do stuff in India and do stuff in Dungan and do stuff in Dunkirk and do stuff for Crash and do stuff in my gash and do stuff in the White City. Sometimes I think option one is a great idea. <laughs> I kid you not. 
wouldn't it be great if we just hung out together and just worshiped Jesus and we didn't have to convince, not that we have to convince anyway, but we didn't have to go out and live this kingdom stuff. Ah, man, who wouldn't vote for that? But it's not an option. Or the other option, option B or number two, is that we could adapt and change some things to make it easier for us in a post-Christian world so that we could just sort of slim it all down and just remove some things and add some things and tidy it all up, box it all up, package it up, make it look presentable presentation. They tell me in retail presentation always sells, right? Well, you look at the church, man. It's starting to get into that way of thinking too. Presentation sells. Make it slick. Make it good. Make it wow. And uh, you'll grab a crowd. I don't vote for number two because there's no life in it. It's a bit of deception in it. I'm going to give you number three. You ready for it? Yeah? Okay. I thought somebody was phoning me. Dave Workman. Remember Dave? He's not phoning me, but he's left me a message. We'll read it later. I'll read it later. Okay. How do we do? I want to give you a model that's simple but overlooked. So if you would... Turn in your Bibles, page, no, I'm just kidding, chapter, Luke chapter 19, part of the Gospels, it's in the New Testament, uh, true story, when I went to Bible college and we started going to those, you know, your favorite books of the Bible, probably not mine, but Amos and Hosea and Obadiah, you know, those books that you just love to read about. Uh, and one time Stephen McCammon told me one time, and it actually is true, you know, he says, you prob- he, prob- he was saying that he felt sorry for somebody like Obadiah because when you get to heaven, everybody wants to meet Paul and they want to meet Peter because he had all these books, but who wants to meet Obadiah? Maybe some of you out there do. But anyway, this is easy to find. So what I used to do at Bible college, if you're new to Scripture at all, when everybody bowed their eyes and prayed, I went to the index page and it gave me the actual page number and the name of the book. So feel free to do that. So Luke chapter 19 is part of the Gospels. Let me read it. I'm reading from the NIV. But you just use whatever translation that you have. We'll go down to verse 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. Anybody ever heard of him? He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him. Since Jesus was coming that way, and then when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up. Jesus looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this, and they began to gossip and mutter. If you want to do sound effects, feel free to mutter. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Yeah, yeah. He is gone to be the guest of a sinner. Wow. But Zacchaeus stood up, and he said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times in my Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came, what did he came to do? He came to seek and to save what was lost. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true and it's given to us in love. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And if you read that, anybody ever heard that story as a kid growing up? Yeah? And I think, is there a song that goes with it? What's the song? 
I know you're panicking. You're thinking, if I say the song, he's going to make me sing. Was it about a wee little man? He was a wee little man. And that's the conclusion we read. It's a cute sort of story that Zacchaeus was a wee little man. He climbed up a tree. And then there's another version, if you ever watch Tommy Tiernan, I wouldn't, I wouldn't actually uh, encourage you to go. Now, just wipe that from your memory. Please do not Google it, especially while I'm speaking. And so there's uh, Zacchaeus, and he's up a tree, and it's a wee little man, and he comes down, and he meets Jesus. And the conclusion is that Jesus loves small men. <laughs> Hallelujah. Right? Where's Richard? Is he away? He's counting money. What? <laughs> he is the tax collector. He is Zacchaeus. He's a wee little man that's counting his money. It's actually counting your money, which should make you very nervous. <laughs> but man, is the story not cute? It's very disruptive and very alarming. Now, we can't get our heads around it because we don't really have tax collectors. Well, we have HMRC, but it's not the same gig as this guy. And you may think it is, but actually, let me convince you, it's not. What would it be like? What would it be like? It might be like having a far-right white supremacist coming to your house for tea. It might be like that. How do you feel about that? Cool. It's different, right? So the tax collectors in those days, they had the Roman garrison behind them. They could do anything they wanted because they had power and might. And they just made up the tax thing as they went along. And so if you got aggressive in any way, if you thought, you know what, I've had enough of this. I'm not paying any tax. Then he could just say, you know what, I was going to charge you 50%. But guess what? See, because of your attitude, it's going to be 80%. And you couldn't do a thing about it because the guy standing behind him probably has a sword pointing at you. And now you're in deaths. That's a conversation that Jesus is having. That's the story, the reality of the ancient scriptures that we're reading today. Jesus came. Jesus came. He came and he associated with people. Tax collectors were the lowest form of society. There were two people that were in the lowest uh, run of the ladder in that society, and that was tax collectors, and the other was prostitutes. Does this, is anything ringing in your head? Who are the people that Jesus was associated with? tax collectors and prostitutes. Man, he had a bad reputation. Kid you not. This was his reputation. This was Jesus' reputation. So he's going to the house. He's not just going to the house to hang out. He's actually going to his house to have a meal with Zacchaeus. He's going to sit at his table. He's going to sit at his table. And this was a big statement. And what happened in that culture is when you went to somebody's house and you had a meal, what it said is that it actually was that we, we, we actually divided society up. It wasn't an all-inclusive, all-welcoming society, actually. The meal at the table was a place where you could keep people in and you could keep people out. It was making a profound social statement in that time in that culture, right? Are you with me? And so whoever you brought in, that was your tribe. That was who you were identifying with. That was who you were aligning yourself with. Their belief system, their, their thinking. They, people just associate, you were associated by person. So when you brought people in, that was it. And so it also then, when you kept people out, you were also saying something else. You know? So and Jesus, Jesus arrives on the scene, this wee little man who was up a tree. He brings him down, the tax collector, and she says, hey, I'm going to your house for dinner. And I, you could, could you imagine the modern and the gossip, and the talk, and the thinking, who is this guy? Does he know who he is, Zacchaeus? Has he any clue? Is he, has he lost the plot? And so the table 
Except where you are in the social sector is all about who you are, who you're doing life with. Who you eat with is really important. Who you eat with is really important. Um, a guy called Tim Chester, have you ever read any of his stuff? He's a, he's a really good guy. Uh, I've read a couple of his books um, a long time ago and just started rereading one. And he, he says this, let me read it to you. It's called The Meal with Jesus by Tim Chester. If you, anybody wants to do a bit of extra reading throughout this series, I would recommend this book to you, A Meal with Jesus. You can go on to, I have staff waiting for you right now called Amazon. And they're willing to take your order for that book called The Meal with Jesus by Tim Chester. He says this, In the world of the Bible, sharing a meal is far more than filling stomachs to stay alive. It's a time of fellowship. It's a time of fellowship. And he says, he quotes another scholar, he says, Scott Barcha, he writes, It would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century of our era. Meal times were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Unity, you were lining yourself with that. Lust, betrayal, or unfaithfulness toward anyone with whom one had shared the table was viewed as particularly reprehensible. On the other hand, when persons were estranged, a meal invitation opened the way of reconciliation. Penny dropped. Is that not the Jesus story? Is that not what Jesus was doing? He was doing that very thing. He was, he was having an invitation for those to be reconciled who were estranged. That's the message of the gospel. For Jesus, meals were not a way to keep people out, always to invite outsiders in. In my head, when I was replaying that, saying that, I was waiting for a do you want to try it again? Just so you can reenact this, me sitting at the kitchen table. In Jesus' time, meals were not a way to keep people out, but to invite outsiders in. Thank you. The Son of Man came. What did he come to do? Seek and save the lost, right? That's what he came to do. And when people read, read that, they would have remembered. They would have thought, this, the Son of Man came to what? The Son of Man came. And because he, he looks right in this story, he, he, he mentioned this phrase somewhere else before. The Son of Man came. Let's look at it. Luke 7, 34, 36. What did the Son of Man come do? And he came to seek and save the lost. But what's the other reference in Luke to the Son of Man? The Son of Man came what? Anybody want to guess? Eating and drinking. He came eating and drinking. Let me read. Luke 7, 36 to 50. And this is how this is, this is lived out. The Son of Man came eating and drinking and say, here's, and they said, what did they say about him? What was his reputation? They said he's a what? He's a glutton. He's a drunkard. And where, where did they get that from? Do you think they just made it up? I don't believe Jesus was a drunkard, by the way. I don't believe he was a glutton. But I actually believe that they had reason to believe that this guy was always eating and always drinking. He was always inviting people to the table. Let's read it. Luke 7, 36 to 50. Are we, are we doing okay? When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him 
at his feet weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisees who invited him saw this, when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, if he actually was the real deal, he would know who is touching him. And what kind of woman she is. She's a sinner. And when they say that kind of woman, they're implying something. We don't have a fact of who this woman was. Some scholars say that she was a prostitute, that she was a modern-day sex slave. We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us that. But this one phrase would maybe indicate and point to that direction. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Would you be nervous if Jesus said that to you? Jason, I have something to tell you. I'd be like, oh, please be good. Please, please, please be a good thing. Please be a good thing. I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said nervously. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denaro and the other 50. Neither of them had money to pay him back, so he forgave the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, no brainer. I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came to your house. You did not give me water for my feet, which was etiquette in the day. She wet my feet with her tears and she wiped them with her hair. She did not give me a kiss, but the woman, or sorry, you did not give me a kiss from the time I entered, which was custom. She's not to stop kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her sins have been many, her sins many have been forgiven. As her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith is saved, you go in peace. Shalom from the inside out. Peace from the inside out. Now Jesus would have done well had he been born in Northern Ireland. Because the culture of that day was a lot of humor. And the humor was irony, or what we would call black humor. And Jesus is being, having a bit of norn irony here. See what I did there? Okay, put down your angry birds and pay attention. The humor, the, the irony is, Jesus flips the situation around. Who's the enemy in the story now? Simon, the one who invited, the one who, who, who set the whole thing up for Jesus. The whole thing is turned around. The tables have been switched. Jesus is now saying, aha, here is the kingdom life. Here is the invitation life. Here is how we do post-Christian culture in a hostile environment. This is how we do it. You now, Simon, you're the guy that was meant to do all this, but you haven't done it for me. You, and the lady, the woman who was, who was the sinful woman, what has she become? She's now the host. Jesus turns it all around, doesn't he? He mixes it up and he turns it probably right side up. And so he's he now saying the woman is the host and she offers the social practices that should have been given to invited guests. And there's a message for us as a church. 
there's a message for us as a church. These stories are two meal stories out of many. Out of many. And if all you had was the gospel of Luke, you would have got easily that Jesus had a reputation. Why Jesus had the reputation of being a glutton and a drunkard. If all you had was the gospel of Luke, never mind Matthew, if you just had that, then you would, you would have picked up in no time at all that why he had that reputation. And how you got that reputation? There are at least 50 references in the book of Luke. Listen to me. 50 references, at least 50 references in the gospel of Luke alone that refer to food and eating. He just talks about it all the time. You'd swear he was born in Northern Ireland, wouldn't you? Irony and eating. What's not to love about Jesus? What's not to love about this man? So let me read this. N.T. scholar Robert Carras, he said this. In the gospel, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. No wonder they called Jesus a glutton and a drunkard. So Jesus, he, Luke, sorry, he mentions the Son of Man twice. He says that he came. And there's two references. And I want, you should write this down. This is pretty helpful. If you have a smartphone or a piece of paper, I, I'd write this down if it was, if it was me. Luke 19 says, he came, we read it, he came to seek and save the lost. And then in Luke 7, when the people heard that he came to seek and save the lost, they would have thought, ah, because it was an oral culture, right? People didn't have Bibles. People, people didn't, uh, when scripture was written, they didn't, they didn't pick up a book in Amazon or, or the Faith Mission or the Burning Bush. They, they didn't do that. They didn't even have a choice of NIV or, or RIV or NLT or the Message or the Passion or anything they got or the, the Manga Bible. They, they had people telling the story of the Gospels. They had people who were orders and they would speak the words of Jesus. That's why it tells you in Deuteronomy, it says that when you're bringing up your kids, parents, listen to this one, when you're bringing up your children when they're young in the morning and the night, speak to them about the ancient scriptures. Let them hear the sound of scripture through your voice. And so they, when they were, when people were hearing the book of Luke later, they would have heard, ah, Jesus came. He did that. He said that twice. Luke was very intentional about that. Jesus came. First time, or the, the, the late one is that he came to seek and save the lost. And in verse 7, that's his mission, right? What he did. He came to seek and save the lost. That's his mission, what he did. But then there's this part in Luke 7, and it gives us a method. What's the method? Eating and drinking. Rocket science. It's deep, isn't it? How many years should you spend in a seminary or a Bible college or a, some other discipleship programming thing to pick that up? I would say zero. I would say zero. So I've said a lot today, but I'm saying all that to say this. Jesus lived in a culture that was hostile to the good news of the gospel. So we forget that, don't we? In fact, eating and drinking with sinners got Jesus killed. Jesus lived in a culture that, that was hostile to the kingdom news. And like I said, he got killed for it. So how did he walk people into the kingdom? Are you with me? How did he walk people into the kingdom, guys? I know you're looking for a smarter way. I'm look, I know you're looking for a deeper way. I know you're thinking there has to be something more profound than this. But how did Jesus walk people into the kingdom reality, the rule and reign of King Jesus that was ushered in from the time he came and stood on this planet when he ushered in this new way of living? How did he usher in the kingdom of heaven, the rule and reign in a hostile world? How did he demonstrate? How was he constantly preaching and demonstrating the kingdom? With an invitation. How was he doing it? One meal at a time. 
one meal at a time. Table talk. Hospitality. That's how Jesus did it. One meal at a time. Let me, let me give it to you straight this morning because I'm in a sort of feisty mood now. But in a very gracious way, in a very loving way, and I hope that you, you receive it well. Guys, if you want to engage and bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to a conservative audience who already know the gospel of Jesus Christ and who are open to the gospel of Jesus Christ and who have heard it all before and are, are willing participants and are actually willing to go along to something that you have organized and an event that you've gathered, I would say to you that that is an okay thing to do. You can go gather the crowd, preach the gospel of Jesus Christ through the message of the gospel, which I endorse and which I am 100% behind as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ and a minister of the kingdom. I would say to you, go do that and you will get a result. As sure as eggs are eggs because these people are conservative and living in the flow and in the circle of Christendom in some way that you will have a result. But if you're sitting here in a black seat this morning, and you want to engage people who have been burnt out on religion. People who have been hurt by the church. People who have been disillusioned by, the, by those who carry the gospel. And we've all done it, myself included. So let's not start and think this is a message for somebody else. If you're living and engaging with people on a day-in, day-out basis. If you're, if you're rubbing shoulders with people that just you know what, they've just had their fill of living in Northern Ireland all their life and they've had enough of what we call good living. Yeah, do, you, do you do life with people like that? I mean, I do. I do, people, I do life with people. I was at a scooter rally uh, last Saturday night and, and somehow engaged in a conversation about Jesus uh, and the guy turns around to me at the very end and he says, uh, I don't want to insult you. So I said, don't. You have a choice. He says, that's all well and good. He says, but if you want to believe that stuff, you go right ahead. But I don't believe in Jesus. Which is kind of silly because Jesus was an actual fact, a real person, and historical evidence gives. But it's just what we believe about Jesus is the real question. Did anybody else rub shoulders with people like that who say, I, I, you know what, I... I I totally respect, that's, that's an ordinary thing, right? Because people in Ireland actually, behind it all, they're very kind people and they're very respectful people. And they'll say, you know what? In, in, in all fairness, he says, if it works for you, that's what they're saying. If it works for you, then so be it. But for me, no thank you. If you're sitting in a black chair today and you want to engage with those people and bring them to the kingdom and to the fullness and the freedom and the full life that God offers people, if you want to uh, uh, introduce them to the love and the life of Jesus Christ, then I would suggest to you that you don't hold a mission rally, you don't hold an event, but you actually just give them a key to your front door. Because that is how Jesus practiced the gospel in a hostile culture and saw those who were far from God become followers of Jesus Christ who in actual fact ended up turning the world upside down and giving you and I the freedom that we experience today here in Dungallon. And so I want to recommend that to you. As we go through the series called The Table, 
Again, this is just an introduction. Next week, we're going to get very practical. We're going to find ways for you to, to engage with people, to open up your homes, what that looks like. How do you engage in conversation? Uh, and by the way, I'm not giving you methods next week. Just some models. I'm not giving you steps one, two, and three. How to get your unbelieving friend into heaven via spaghetti bolognese <laughs> and a bottle of slur. And I know some of you are that cheap, you won't even buy slur. Unless it's down to a pound at Christmas time. Let's stand. We're going to gather around another table just right now because uh, I think it's fitting to do that we would engage in his table before we invite others to our table this week. So we're going to invite, we're going to do this as a family. So our children are going to come in and join us. So there might be slight disruption. Let's just posture our hearts, right? Let's just still ourselves before we go into another week. And I want you to think about your friends and your family and the people that you rub shoulders with. And I want you to, again, to just, I want you to imagine right now. I want you to imagine. I want you to have a little faith that it is possible for those people to encounter Jesus and to find the life that is truly life. And I know that some of you today, you're probably thinking, I've tried that, I've done that, I've tried different methods, and I've tried different... Try different, I don't know, you even thought them gimmicks. But what I'm giving you this morning is scripture. I'm giving you the Jesus way. I'm giving you the Jesus practice. I'm giving you it straight from the book. I'm giving you it from the one that we follow. And so, see, to be a follower of Jesus Christ, we, we want to be with him. We want to be like him. But more than anything, we want to do what he does. And this is the doing what he does. So just still your heart. Just think of those that you engage with. And could we as a family of faith, as a community of faith, could we disregard the first two options that I gave you this morning? Would you be up for that? That we don't become a fortress from the world, but become the hope for the world? And could we discard option number two? that we're not going to package it and dress it all up and try and make it flurry for people so that somehow we're trying to get a beautiful answer to an ugly question. Because that's what we try and do. When we try to dull the gospel, all we're trying to do is make something, make something beautiful. And we, we, we do get ugly questions at times, right? We do get ugly questions. Don't try and make it beautiful. But engage with people. Invite them to your table. Let outsiders in. We're good at this. We know how to do this. So I'm going to ask you, I'm going to be a little chaotic, I'm going to ask you to go and just grab the cup which represents the blood of Jesus. I'm just having a conversation with my wife. 
Oh, servers. You like servers. Who would like the servers? Do we have servers? I want me to pick the two people. David and Anne, would you come in service? Would you come in service? And when you're ready, would you come and would you take the bread and take the wine and would you just hold it for a moment? Just not rush into this. And we'll eat and we'll drink together. Come as a family, come as an individual if you came on your own. We don't want you to feel alone this morning. That's why we want you to eat and drink together. So when you're ready, just to save time, when you come and take the emblems, the bread and the wine. Surrendering our hearts, your faithful. 
just as you have received the bread and the wine, why don't you, whenever you have it, why don't you just stand and just, uh, we'll just wait for everybody to, to join with us in this moment, this practice. just posture your hearts. This is, this, is the, this is the ultimate table that we have been invited to. This is his table. And this is an invitation that many of us have received. We have received it openly and graciously and without condemnation. This table has brought us into the freedom and the life that we know in Christ Jesus. This table is hugely important to us as a community of faith. And the only reason that we can invite others to our table where we can give them the key. And by the way, the gospel comes the key to your house. Did you know that? Let me say that again. The gospel comes with a key to your house. And the reason why we can do that is because he's invited us to his table. Some of you recently, some of us many years now, but it's a place that we need to keep doing and keep going. And that doesn't necessarily mean it happens here on a Sunday morning. In fact, if you read the ancient scriptures, it says they broke bread daily in one another's homes. They opened up the ancient scriptures. It's hospitality. They prayed. And as a result of that, signs and wonders were done on a daily basis. And God added to the church daily those who were being saved. So I want to take this moment. And give it to you as a moment of gratitude. It's a moment of thanks. Of the invitation to the table that you received. When an outsider. When God invited you in. Wasn't it marvelous? It's the best invitation that you could have ever had. So with a thankful heart we say thank you for your body which is broken for us. We take the bread and we eat and we give thanks. For this body and for this freedom that it brings. We take the cup that symbolizes the blood of Jesus. Takes us into a way better covenant of grace and freedom. Where we experience this righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So we drink in freedom. We drink with joy. Knowing that it's finished. And we stand faultless before him. Let me pray. I'm going to invite the crash team to come up and pray. If you need prayer this morning for anything at all, if you're sick in your body, if you're making decisions, if you need just, just a fresh touch from God this morning, we'd love the opportunity to pray with you. But before we offer you individual prayer, let me just pray for us as a community of faith as we go into this week. And maybe some of you are thinking already of how you can open up and extend the welcome of hospitality and give people a key to your house. You ready? Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word that is powerful, it's true, that it's good for us in our culture, in our day, in our time. God, would you make it alive to us, God? Would you give us the courage to engage with the ancient scriptures this week, Father God? Would you bring us into, um, God, just, uh, yeah, just into 
conversations with those who are far from you, God. Those who even seem hostile to the good news of the king and the kingdom, God, but who are secretly aching for a touch of the Holy Spirit and the reality of your rule and reign in their hearts and their families and their lives and their workplaces, God. God, would you give us the courage to engage with them and to invite them to our table, to our homes, where we would listen, where we would love and extend grace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Have a great week and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. <laughs>